the same hand. I always wanted to learn how to swim. My mother doesn't know how to swim, but she grew up next to a river, and it was something my father always made fun of my mother about, and she didn't want me to be made fun of, obviously, especially by my father, who can be incessant and um, at times cruel with his teasing. But I always wanted to learn how to swim, and I was probably seven or eight years old, and we always stayed in a hotel in Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City, but we're southerners of Vietnam, so I know it is Saigon. And we always stayed in a hotel called the Palace Hotel, I think it's called. It's gone now. It's not there anymore. And they had a restaurant that you would go up to. So and we would always go for breakfast there and I would always have toast with marmalade. And just outside of it was a bar and there was a man who worked at the bar who was a really nice man and uh, he liked my father a lot because my father likes a drink, a stiff drink at the end of the night. Um, but he was always really nice to our family and we stayed there for seven years about every summer at least and we saw many incarnations and many changes in that hotel but a lot of things stayed the same and one of the things that stayed the same was the rooftop pool so um, the rooftop pool was pretty small it was probably the size um, like half the size of a basketball court and you had to go up this spiral staircase to get there which I always thought was novel because I'd never seen a spiral staircase before and it was really cool also being on a rooftop. And it wasn't until I was about nine that I could see over the edge of it. And I remember one time throwing the beach ball over the side to see what happened, which my father found quite funny. When we went to Saigon, it was a lot of visiting friends and eating out, but we didn't have a lot of things to do. So um, we probably wanted to go to the beach that year a lot more. So it was important that I knew how to swim to a certain degree. And the pool had jumping platform, like one of those cement concrete ones that had been tiled, which was really foolish because it was slippery. And I remember standing with my back against the, the edge of the building. So the city was behind me and I was facing the pool and opposite the pool was a covered area with like lawn chairs that you could like lay out in the shade. And my dad asked me if I was ready. I said no. And he was like, no one's ever ready. Something to the effect of that. He was like, I'm going to push you in. And he threw the ball in the water and he pushed me in. And then I sputtered for a second and he jumped in. And he just stayed at one side of the pool and not far, close enough that he could grab me. But he was like, just come here. And I just kind of splashed around and sputtered and then just kicked until I figured out how to get to him. It was a very satisfying moment, I'm sure, for him. And I made it to him and then he would just pull me to the dark, deep end of the pool and we would do it over and over again until I learned to make the splashing slightly more fluid and make the like flailing more into a stroke and the wild kicking into a less wild kicking. I'm not a really good swimmer <laughs> still to this day, um, but I love swimming and being immersed in water. Uh, there's something wholly satisfying about it. It feels really good to be just enveloped in water. So that was the day I learned how to swim. <laughs> Traveling back to Vietnam every year was a really unusual experience because 
in the grand scheme of things, my family is very wealthy and we're very well off. And then we go back to my mother's village that they would shut the electricity off in the village because people who are uneducated just don't need electricity. So I was aware that I was very aware of how lucky I had it for a long time because we would go back and we would spend um, one or two weeks um, in my mother's village and it was really horrible as a teen and as a child to not have your game gear be charging overnight. But that was my mother's life. That's what she left behind and she left all of her family behind. So I understood that some sacrifice was made for making a better life for themselves and thereafter their family. We traveled a lot throughout Southeast Asia. Places like Japan and Europe never really, we went, but we never really returned to them because my father would bemoan feeling like an average common man when he went to those places. He loves feeling rich. And in Canada, it's very hard to feel rich when you work as hard as he does and still you have to make mortgage payments. But if you go to Vietnam or any developing nation, uh, a couple bucks takes you a long way. So that was a really large part, portion of why we went to the places we did. But being able to speak in your native tongue and eat the food that you are used to and see old friends and smell everything that you're used to. Those are all very important things culturally for him. And my mother went back because of family. So those were our two primary reasons. And they still go back every year, just without my brother and I. When I was probably around 16 was when I realized the gravity of the choices that they made and how difficult that was. Um, it probably wasn't until my early 20s until I really understood how difficult that would be. Um, I have a hard time just thinking about moving from my own home, let alone to another country, having nothing um, and having lost everything on top of it. There's a lot of words for the type of people they are. And I think that's the same as it is here. Um, there are words to represent being an expat or an immigrant or leaving and then coming back. Um, but more or less, the translation of that word is a traitor in Vietnam. So that was always a really weird sensation. Basically, before any purchase or any money ever had to exchange hands when we went to Vietnam, I was never allowed to speak because the price of it changes when they know that you're not actually from Vietnam. I was visibly a white Asian so they would often hide me in a vehicle. So if we went to a zoo or if we went to a hotel or a restaurant, prices always had to be established before I was allowed to make myself a parent. My brother speaks more fluently than I do, so he could get away with it. But um, I was very clearly a Western version of a Vietnamese person, um, so a traitor. Kids would always say that um, Uncle Ho didn't love me and like you can you wear a red scarf when you go to school which represents that you've learned a lot of things but um, one of which is that um, Ho Chi Minh loves you. People there, um, like common Vietnamese people, they, especially girls at the age that I was going around 13 or 14, you wear polyester pajamas. Like you wear two-piece um, tailored for you, very cheaply tailored polyester pajamas um, that have like little pockets and then you kind of grow out out of that and you turn into like an adolescent who is finding a suitor and then you kind of slowly revert back to that so 
there is a certain customary dress. So wearing jeans is a re- was a real luxury at the time I was going. Things have changed quite a bit. It's been over 10 years, but um, it was definitely in the way I looked and in my speech, obviously. I always felt like people were looking at me in that might have just been encouraged by my parents <laughs> telling me that there are people looking at you and they're going to rip you off. I always felt immensely privileged and probably better than the people there because I had choice in my life and I had things and I could eat cheese, which they couldn't have, and candy bars that they couldn't have. Those were things that were always really special that made me more special than them. But it made me feel pretty crummy as a child. I think there was probably a lot of forcing myself to be an outsider because that's how I was raised and to always try to view things from the outside and experience things, how someone who isn't a part of the majority is experiencing things because it was a really unusual dynamic to grow up with. They raised me to remember that I was neither Canadian nor Vietnamese and that I had no homeland and to fend for myself because no one will have your back. Being told you have no land is a pretty strange thing. And I, I feel it sometimes when I see Vietnamese people, people I recognize as being Vietnamese in ethnicity, and I sometimes feel like I'm being looked at. And occasionally someone who is Vietnamese will stop and talk to me in Vietnamese and want to find that community. And I feel like a phony, I suppose, to them. Um, but I... I do genuinely feel Canadian. I think that's a really special part about Canada is um, knowing that there are a lot of people exactly like me in Canada who, whose parents left for one reason or another. My father came from a very rich family of publishing and rubber tree farming, um, but he just ran it and he had basically underpaid workers who did that work for him. Um, my mother came from a really rural place in Vietnam My father didn't want to fight in the war, so he just went off to southern Vietnam just to have a good time, and that's how he met my mother. When the war happened, there was no more being rich, and I come from a very capitalist family, and um, my grandfather didn't see any point in being in Vietnam anymore if he couldn't be a rich man. So he took the money he had, bought a boat, and then sailed to Thailand. Tailed is probably an overly nice word. Um, just after my brother was born. They stayed in a refugee camp in Thailand for a couple of weeks where my father and my grandfather created a moonshine business um, making rice wine, and that's how they were able to bring a little bit more money to Canada. Planes came from the West. Every couple of weeks, you would just hope that a plane would come to bring you away, and they were sorely disappointed when it was a Canadian plane because they really wanted to be warm. So <laughs> they were hoping for U.S. and I think their ideal was to move to California with all the other Vietnamese people who'd left after the war. My parents gave me everything I wanted growing up. When I was 16, I had a car. I was never for want of anything and that was their version of being good parents because they didn't have any of those things. I lacked a lot of freedom, which is a cultural inherent um, attitude towards females. So I always had a really strict curfew. 
And there was a lot expected of me, uh, a lot of cliches of being good at math and speaking well and speaking up and growing up to be like a doctor or lawyer or a judge or a police officer, somebody with power. I got really drunk when I was 14, like really drunk for the first time. And my mother wanted to know where I was. Obviously, both my parents wanted to know where I was. My curfew was about 8 p.m. when I was 14 or 15. And I was at Jeff's house with a bunch of boys. And I had gotten driven home by Dan Miller's father. And he picked me up. And then he put me on the porch of my house. And he's like, you going to be okay? And I was like, yeah, yeah. I was drunk. And then I... For fear of having to deal with my parents, like any drunk teenager, I hid under under a car that was parked in our driveway. And I was like, I'll just lay low here. And my mother, like I saw her leave. She was like, I've had it. I can't wait any longer. And it was about 9 or 10 p.m. And she left. She got in the car and left. <laughs> I saw her leave, so I snuck back into the house. So she knew that I was there and she was just waiting until I just came in because I don't know how a parent tells their drunk teenage daughter to get out from underneath that car. She came and she was like, I don't know what to do with you, like any mother would say. And um, she left and I was drunk. I threw up. I had drank Curacao mixed with like 7-Up, which seemed sensible at the time. And I remember throwing up blue. And I remember trying to drink a juice box and then throwing that up. But I passed out in my bed and then my dad came home and he was livid. That was the first time I got a whipping. And I remember having to like deal with being afraid of my father and how horrible that felt, obviously. But um, I was always more close with my father. I always had like, not contempt for my mother, but she was, she played a very gender typical mother's role like she was my nagging mom who always wanted me to clean up after myself and my father was always the fun one who would teach me how to swim the hard way and when I asked for money my mother would make me earn it and my father would be like here's my bucks so that was one of those moments where I was like oh he's not on my side the way I thought he was um and just hating him so much for it at the time. And so it was like my mom came home and she looked at me and she was like, I'm so disappointed in you. How did you do this? And then she left and then my, I guess she went back to the restaurant to watch it and told my dad what she had found. And my dad came back and then I got this lashing. I think he punched me. Um, I think I got a slap to the face and then a lot of whipping. And the whipping's the worst because it hurts a lot. And a lot of my East Asian friends, we would always like talk and like trade horror stories and be like, I got a hair dryer last night. What'd you get? And someone would be like, I got a coat hanger. Coat hangers were a really common thing to hit your kid with. Being too drunk to like understand that and also being drunk for one of the first times, like that drunk, just kind of passing out and crying and passing out and then waking up to my mother applying tiger balm to like all the wounds and her like seeing how distraught she was and then just being like oh get out of here mom but it took me probably like 10 years to realize like the gravity of that moment and how my mom was on my side and I remember having to lie at school and tell people that Dan had done it that because he was a drummer and I was like oh we were just goofing around with drumsticks and that was 
another shared experience with other Asian friends. But that happened. Um, and then I never followed the rules anyway. So it happened one or two more times. And I think my mom slapped me a couple of times for being a smart ass because I am and was. I think I was about 16 and I was in this place that's really, really south in Vietnam at my dad's friend's house, his childhood friend. And he's a, this guy's like a really big Vietnamese guy. And he is a very big drunk and he has a daughter and then a young son, I believe, six or seven. And this kid wasn't doing anything. He was just being a kid, but he really lay it on him and uh, making a child bleed, I think really changed the waves for my father. And he was like, oh, they're defenseless. Even when they're 15 and talking back to you, they're pretty defenseless. They don't, they don't have any way to defend themselves. So like I saw that moment change in him and that was pretty, a pretty strong feeling for him. But also at the same time, like I always slept with a knife by my bed. I was always ready to defend myself from him. And one time I did try and stab him. So that was pretty <laughs> dramatic moment in my life. Again, I had been drinking, so um, he got pretty lucky. He just got a nick. That could have been pretty bad. There's a certain part of me that understands that that is a cultural leftover. His father was all about beating his kids. But my parents also would go back to Vietnam, and there was a point where they saw what they were, he saw what he was doing, and he advocated for people in Vietnam not to do that to their children, especially children. I was a teenager, and um, I would never say someone was asking for it, but I got into a lot of trouble as a kid, and I don't know how you deal with that as a parent um, when your kid is using, like, drugs with abandon, and you don't know which of those is really going to take off. Because I, I did a lot of dumb things. Like, I got arrested for shoplifting, and I got suspended to from school for selling drugs. My parents were very rightfully afraid of drugs, but um, my father was a pretty open drug user as well and drinker. Like my dad did opium in front of me when we were in Hue in central Vietnam. So that's gonna have some sort of effect on your kids and you can't deny that. He is a fan of vice and hedonism and to a certain extent, so am I. So I am absolutely my father grown up now. My neurosis is my mother's, but my defensiveness, my contrary for the sake of being contrary, my shenanigans and my prank pulling. A lot of the things I think are the best side of me are my, from my father, but a lot of the things that are the worst side of me are also my father. Neither of us take things as seriously as we should, and sometimes that's a great benefit to us because we can keep our cool, but sometimes it's comes as a great downfall for us, more specifically to our loved ones. I forgive him all for it, and I empathize with it at this point, so I'm very open about it, and I see that he has remorse and has tried to change, and I think that has value. You don't have to live your life as a victim or a survivor, a hero or a survivor. You can just live your experiences and learn to forgive and Forgive, but maybe not forget, I guess, which is something my father always said. I have a lot of respect for my father. I think he's done some really amazing things in his life. To a certain degree, I also see him for 
the coward he might be in some of his actions, which is revealing to me about what could happen to me in the future, in that my brother, who has a lot of mental health issues, um, up to and including autism and schizophrenia, my father makes a lot of light of it and jokes of it in front of him and kind of lives a life of denial towards it. And I guess that's part of seeing your parents as an adult and as a grown-up and not as a protector, but as a, almost like a peer for a bit. Certain experiences shine a light on sides of their personality you never want to know about. Seeing him do that for my brother, he again, he's giving him everything he can financially and his version of doing the best he can and I don't blame him for it because how do you, else do you do it, deal with it but is throwing money at it. And um, it's been very trying watching him not acknowledge how much this affects his health. And a lot of my life it was about him being like a loser or lazy when in fact it was, you know, not having all of the same wiring as other people have so I guess in a way it has made me feel like I shouldn't hold out hope for my father to be as supportive as maybe other people's parents are and I don't know that you can compare parents against other parents I don't think that's fair for anybody and not very healthy but I used to glorify my father being a daddy's girl and just seeing how he could do everything and how he always was the life of the party, but that he would never get vulnerable and what kind of cost that had on our family and my brother and his family that he created and has lost. So that's been a <laughs> an especially interesting side of seeing my father that I'm not, I don't think is for the best. I hope that my father isn't who I turn out to be. So I guess in a way I'm bound because I don't want to behave in a certain way, but I'll accept changes that come. <laughs> Same Hand is a project produced and edited by Duncan Gidney. Our website is thesamehand.com, where you can find more info and other episodes. Thanks so much for listening.